0: Look, this audiobook is not exactly a comfortable read. It's supposed to be challenging, right? And this chapter is, is kind of painful to me. And, and I can't really do it justice by explaining it. You'll just have to listen to it. It's about Ecclesiastes, and that was, for the longest time, my favorite book of the Bible. It was the book of the Bible that proved to me that it was God's Word. And as I did more research into it, I only found more and more controversy. And as a fundamentalist, that became a major stumbling block, uh, potentially, a major hurdle, a challenge. I don't know exactly what to do with it. And so that's why I needed to make a chapter about it in this book, in The Paradox of Fundamentalism, And this isn't going to be resolved quickly. This is the kind of thing that, you know, I'm going to have to keep writing about. And I still have complete and total faith in God. But what do you do with parts of the Bible that just don't seem, by all the evidence that you can find, to match what you as a fundamentalist want to believe Should you live with that cognitive dissonance and just brush it aside and say, it's not a thing, it doesn't matter, I believe what I believe, or should you follow evidence? Should you trust those who present the evidence? Or should you say, they must be servants of the devil, they're lying? These are the kinds of things I've been dealing with, and it's not going to stop me from worshiping God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. So that's the journey I'm on. And there's a reason why this is the Not Done Yet podcast, because I want to be able to face problems honestly and talk about them honestly. That's what this chapter is. It's not a very long chapter. I hope you enjoy it. Remember, you can go to wolfpox.com if you want to get my email. And you can get links to my substack and other things that I'm doing. I am working on a series of Substack articles on what it means to be a Christian in the modern day facing coming tribulation and all of the craziness that we're anticipating, at least I'm anticipating. So if you want to have more from me, uh, go to my website, wolfpox.com. If you follow my telegram channel, I'm going to be posting YouTube, uh, Episodes of my interviews with Hervoy Morich on TNT radio, which I've been doing, I think, for almost two years now, with uh, basically every week doing interviews on current events and the craziness of what's unfolding in the world and, you know, the World Economic Forum and Canadian politics and these weird stories that sort of signs of the times. So I think a lot of you would be interested in that, but you won't get it on this podcast, you'll have to go to either my YouTube channel, or if you want links with other updates of stuff that I do, you can go to my Telegram channel. And there you get because I deleted my Twitter. You can get updates through my Telegram channel. And uh, we could use some more subscribers there some more followers there if you use Telegram. But whether you just listen here, or you email me or however you're enjoying my content. You're listening. I I hope I can be edifying to you. I don't have all the answers, but I want to be a sincere Christian trying to grapple with the modern age of deception we live in. And I hope that means something to you and, and that it's it's valuable in your Christian walk. So feel free to to reach out. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see more of. I love all that stuff. I love having feedback. So God bless you, and uh, enjoy this chapter. Chapter 4. Koheleth, who are you? These words spoke deeply to me the very first time I read them as a child. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Everything is Vanity. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. I finally encountered someone who broke through the noise of ordinary chatter and grieved for the world openly, with the appropriate level of sorrow. Clearly, whoever wrote the book was occupied with the tragedy of mankind's existence, which I saw as the most blatant controversy ignored by everyone. As I read further, the passage connected this lament to the mystery of time and nature in a way that even a child like me could understand. What does a man profit from all the work for which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing about which it can be said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no memory of former things, nor will there be any memory of later things yet to exist among those who follow after. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 3 to 11. The sensation I felt was excitement and relief, because for the first time in my adolescence, I knew that I was not crazy. Here, in the beloved book found everywhere, was the proof. Not only was it available and beloved, but regarded as God's own holy words, perfect in its messages, and designed to teach crucial wisdom, meaning nobody could dispute it. It was unlimited ammunition to make my case if I needed to. Before Ecclesiastes, I gravitated to things like dark comedy and cynical media, because they at least pointed out the weary nature of life and acknowledged its absurdities. I had no concept of what philosophy was, nor did I have access to classic literature, so I took what I could get in pop culture. When somebody in school mentioned that the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates Had been the greatest thinker ever, I quickly sought his teachings in the school library. Plato's dialogues, which were designed to recall and simulate what it was like to talk with Socrates, lit the fire of philosophy in me. Although not as profound as the book of Ecclesiastes, which I would discover later, Socrates clearly cared more about truth than reputation, politeness, or circumstance. Already, at the age of ten, I had noticed that circumstances were always changing, so that there was no point in talking much about anything. Only truths, I would later learn they were called principles, remained forever, and these could apply to many circumstances. Why wasn't everyone focused on the eternal, since the temporal was all vanity? Just thinking about how Socrates, who existed thousands of years before I was born, remained relevant and powerful ages later, proved me right. Circumstances could change a million times, but principles were pristine and stable. Things that were important were actually timeless. Yet as Socrates himself acknowledged, this awareness of the transcendent made daily life all the more tedious, and he knew better than anyone that he did not possess the truth. After Socrates, I started to read philosophy more habitually, but found myself disappointed in all the wordy intellectualism they devolved into. It was like they were trying to turn life into math and solve the equation, not speak from the heart about what it meant to be alive. I tried to digest the Proverbs of the Bible next, but while many of them were precious nuggets of advice, they lacked structure or elaboration, and so they couldn't capture the full conundrum. That is when I stumbled across Ecclesiastes. It was strange to find a book in the middle of the Bible that I had never heard preached or referred to, despite going to Sunday school my whole childhood and attending plenty of church services besides. As soon as I read it, I knew it was far greater than Socrates. It was so profound that to me Ecclesiastes was for years the only book of the Bible that I knew for certain was not a man's opinion, but God's word. If the words I loved were written by King Solomon, which is what both Jewish and Christian traditions hold, then they carry a special significance in the history of the world. That's because King Solomon was granted divine wisdom beyond what any ruler had obtained in the past or would ever obtain in the future. 1 Kings 3 verse 12. That last part is very important because it tells us that nobody else will ever surpass it such writings would transcend all circumstances and be invaluable for every generation. I loved to know that God not only blessed Israel with such a king, but that this king in turn produced wisdom that can instruct mankind thousands of years later. Even if his message is uncomfortable, that would be precisely the point. A wise man ought to force the world to face uncomfortable truths. Truth is disruptive, and that's good. But there is a problem. Scholars doubt whether Ecclesiastes was actually written by Solomon. In fact, the vast majority are now certain that it wasn't him. In the Lexham Bible Dictionary, for example. Solomon's authorship is presented as only one of several traditions about how the text came to be. They acknowledge that the opening words point to Solomon as the author, as the author identifies himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. But Britannica comments on this point. Though these words can only refer to Solomon mid-10th century BC, the frequency of Aramaic forms and the book's rationalistic contents date it sometime about the second half of the 3rd century BC. This is blasphemy to a fundamentalist. It means that the book itself is lying to us, because it was not really written by David's son or a king of Israel. It means it was written less than 300 years before Jesus, during the inglorious days of the Second Temple, instead of 900 years earlier, in the glory days of the United Kingdom. We can ignore the arguments of scholars easily if we have nothing invested in the text. If we won't be using it for anything anyway, who cares? But if we are trying to preach, teach, or derive important insights from it, this controversy changes everything. For even one book of the Bible to be a hoax means that the entirety is no longer God's word for one. Everything is suddenly up for grabs. Even if nobody else cares, it matters a great deal to me personally whether it was created by a random plagiarist or by King David's blessed son. This book is a treasure to me. It shows how a wise ruler regards the endless toil of life and even comments on God's role in orchestrating it. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I determined in my mind to search the wisdom of all that is done under the sun, what an immense weight God has laid upon mankind to occupy them. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12 to 13. If Ecclesiastes is a forgery or a pseudopigrapha, as scholars call it, when somebody fraudulently attributes their writing to a different person, then it is no better than trash. It wasn't written by a man with special wisdom from God. Not only would it be deeply fallible, but even wrong and harmful. It wouldn't belong in the Bible. God could have had a completely different message he wanted people to hear, and Ecclesiastes turns it all upside down and makes grand statements that are folly. And indeed, there are those who say it never deserved a place in it to begin with. The Jewish Encyclopedia states, the canonicity of the book was, however, long doubtful, and was one of the matters on which the school of Shammai took a more stringent view than the school of Hillel. Note. The controversy of the rabbinic schools of Shammai and Hillel will be reserved for a future book. End of note. Meaning that, Even early rabbis disputed whether it should be included in their standardized holy texts. Endeavors were made to render it apocryphal on the ground of it not being inspired, or of its internal contradictions, or of a tendency which it displayed towards heresy, that is, Epicureanism a worldview named after the Greek philosopher Epicurus, who lived from 341 to 270 B.C. Imported Wisdom Epicurus, like so many Greek thinkers, was influenced by Aristotle, who sought to explain the composition of the universe from a rational perspective. In a sense, he started the process of turning philosophy Into math. He lived 300 years prior to Epicurus and was a successor of Plato, who himself was a successor of Socrates. Epicurus was active during the period known as Hellenism, the infusion of Greek thinking into Jewish culture. Epicureanism emphasized a materialist worldview because, as Aristotle observed, the universe was a giant system of interlocking physics that perpetuated each other in cycles, with or without human involvement. As such, Epicurus was also a rational hedonist, because materialism meant everything was ultimately pointless, and so the best somebody could do was try to enjoy life and minimize trouble. Seasons followed seasons, Generations followed generations, and everything had natural, deterministic cycles. Such a philosophy rendered both ambition and superstition foolish. The best kind of pleasure, he said, was tranquility and friendship, because kindness was reciprocated with kindness, and brotherly love with brotherly love. Unlike the author of Ecclesiastes, however... He taught that there must not be any gods, or if there were, they were totally unconcerned with humanity, and therefore mankind should have no fear of them, nor of death. His teachings were popular, and were spread around as a gospel, that is, a message of good news. So my heart began to despair over all the labor I had toiled at under the sun. When a man exists who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his legacy to a man who has not worked for it, this, too, is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man profit for all the toil and striving with which he labors under the sun? Indeed, all his days are filled with grief, and his task is sorrowful. Even at night his mind does not rest. This, too, is vanity. Nothing is better than for a man to eat and drink and enjoy his work. I have also seen that this is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat? And who can find enjoyment? To the man who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he assigns the task of gathering and accumulating that which he will hand over to one who pleases God. This too is vanity, and a grasping of air. Ecclesiastes 2, to 26 When I think of King Solomon writing these words in his old age, my thoughts resonate with them deeply. But the moment I consider that they could be a forgery by some anonymous writer, in the Second Temple period, I become disgusted at their presumptuousness. This exposes within me a dichotomy. I can just as easily despise any part of the Bible if it were shown to be false, but as long as I have confidence in its veracity, I cherish it. What I considered the greatest wisdom in the world can instantly become galling and provocative nonsense when I think of it as inspired merely by the philosophy of other thinkers, not the moving of the Holy Spirit. It is not good enough to treat it as a masterful Jewish work of literature inspired by Hellenistic imported ideas. With Ecclesiastes in particular, the vanity of vanities would be too ironic my God, why did you not supplement this book with better proof of its authorship, I want to ask? If it wasn't written by Solomon, why did you allow it to enter the canon of the Bible and reach my childhood eyes? There should be no doubt that Epicurus' teachings ended up in Israel, because once you understand Hellenism, it becomes unavoidable. We will talk more about that later. The question is whether Ecclesiastes was written later than or prior to Epicurus. If it was written later, it would make sense for a Jewish scribe to adapt it, because Jews respected the great thinkers of their day and wanted to have an equivalent in their own society. Attributing their writings to Solomon retroactively is well within the Second Temple tradition, because scribes and Jewish thinkers produced countless pieces of literature and claimed they were from all sorts of historic figures. If that sounds surprising, keep in mind that Jews were occupied by foreign powers and governed by various innovative pagan empires for centuries at a time when God ceased to speak to them or help them with miracles and prophets. They were relatively unimportant All throughout the Second Temple period. Israel's envy of heathen kingdoms is a common theme throughout the Old Testament, as God himself compares their impulses to horrors who lust after stronger nations rather than trusting him. Debating about the origin of Ecclesiastes by looking at its philosophy in English translations will not yield much insight, however. There are always differences and similarities of ideas, and we can't know who said anything first. Scholars go to the oldest Hebrew manuscripts for technical clues, and the results are not good. As we've already noted, there are plenty of Aramaic loan words mixed into the Hebrew text of Ecclesiastes, which wouldn't make sense before the Babylonian captivity, since the Aramaic-speaking Persians only conquered Israel and imposed their language on them after Babylon demolished Solomon's temple. And this was long after Solomon died. What's in a name? The book of Ecclesiastes also does not mention Solomon by name at all, but rather it claims to be the words of Koheleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. You won't find that word in your English version, however. In Hebrew, Koheleth is a term related to a person who assembles others or collects things. Note, it might help to know that the very name Ecclesiastes is based on a translation of this name, Koheleth, into Greek. You'll recall that the Greek term ekklesia means assembly. When the Hebrew was translated into Greek, they named this book after its supposed author, who identified himself as an assembler. English Bibles adopted the Greek title verbatim, as they did with books such as Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, rather than translating them into English counterparts. End of note. Although there is no usage of the term outside this book, this person's name is translated as preacher or teacher in English translations because of this role as a gatherer of men. Scholars point out that everybody who descends from David's lineage has a tendency to call themselves the son of David as a way of glorifying themselves. Supposedly, ancient Jews called themselves somebody's son in an attempt to identify with their legacy and attributes. This is why being sons of God is a valid expression despite not being literally true or Abraham being the father of countless people long after he died. To contrast this Koheleth pen name, we see that in the book of Proverbs, it states explicitly that they are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Why would Solomon give his name in one book and not another? Ecclesiastes could be considered his greatest work, and he should be proud of it, shouldn't he? It's true that this Koheleth character says that he was king over Israel in Jerusalem, 1 verse 12, and that he was wiser than any of his predecessors, 1 verse 16, which should leave only Solomon. But this means little to scholars. They point out that later authors loved to attribute their works to famous old figures, so they would feel more weighty. The books of Enoch is a classic example. And while it isn't likely based on the evidence, there could also have been a king who came after Solomon who considered himself a son of David, who genuinely believed that he was wiser than all of his predecessors, and who decided to call himself Koheleth in a book. Whatever the truth is, this matter of names already puts my favorite book of the Bible in very murky waters. Timing is everything. Now the stronger objection. Yale Bible Study puts it bluntly. The language of the book shows that it cannot have been written in the age of Solomon, this is late Biblical Hebrew, heavily influenced by Aramaic, and with many points of affinity with the later Hebrew of the Mishnah, Talmudic books created hundreds of years after Jesus. Not only is the writing style reminiscent of the Aramaic, which would be introduced to Israel much later, but there are also a small number of direct loanwords, Between these two factors, scholars believe Ecclesiastes was written as late as 200 BC, when the Greeks ruled Israel, but an Aramaic-infused version of Hebrew was common. How troublesome for our philosopher king! The Hebrew in which the present form of the books is written represents a very late stage in the development of the language. The text contains loanwords from Persian and Aramaic and uses certain vocabulary and grammatical forms that only became common shortly before the beginning of the Christian era. Thus, the present form of the book must come from the Second Temple period at the earliest, i.e. from at least four centuries later than Solomon. And Koheleth is probably a wisdom teacher who takes on the persona of Solomon in order to argue that, Even someone as wise and as rich as Solomon would say what the teacher says, if given a chance to do so. Is it possible that this celebrated book of the Bible, which was the inspiration of my love for it in the first place, was a hoax? Oftentimes I want to ask God why he did things the way he did things. I'm ready to have faith. I trust him fully. I have no doubt that he did the best thing. But I don't understand why that's the best thing, you know? And that's how so many things are in the world. And that's kind of the whole quest of this book series. So let's tune in again. Next chapter, uh, let me just say that it's going to be on the inspiration of the Bible. The inspiration. We all like to believe that the Bible is inspired, but we need to ask exactly what that means. And uh, it's another, it's going to be another controversial chapter. I hope you can hang in there and follow along because it is for your edification. And, And I believe that We become stronger Christians as we face challenges, and we face them honestly, with faith, prayerfully, and reverently with God's supremacy in mind. So thank you for listening. Again, don't forget, you can go to wolfpox.com to get my email address, uh, or you can join my social media stuff that I have available there. It's linked. And uh, we're not done yet. I don't have all the answers, but I am searching, (laughs) so thank you.